0: I'm here with uh, John, and today we're going to talk about uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And I think, am I uh, Kierkegaard? I think is the the received pronunciation. Though I think we uh, the common pronunciation is Kierkegaard. Uh, do you have an opinion on the correct pronunciation, John?
1: I think the place uh, that I'm studying at now uses Kierkegaard, so that's what I'll use. Okay. Though <laughs> so I've been known to use both pronunciations in one sentence.
0: Yes, and uh, we, uh, today what we I think we're going to discuss is simply his biography and to get it straight. And, and I think it's important, especially with a writer like Kierkegaard, although I think it's important with anybody, but especially with Kierkegaard. Uh, to plug in what he's doing with his life course because the more detail you have about what the events that are unfolding uh, in his life, uh, that detail then uh, brings a, a degree of sensibility to the the corpus that may not otherwise uh, be there. Uh, and the biography that I have just read and have refreshed myself with is the new biography that has come out uh, by Stephen Backhouse. And Backhouse, of course, is writing for a more uh, popular or it's a more accessible biography. But having said that, I th- of, of the biographies I've dealt with, it is the most just dis- for sheer entertainment value. Uh, there is a richness to it and detail that uh, I can I I honestly don't remember what whether I've dealt with the Lowry biography or not I've I've read so many different things but what tell us John what your the what your resources in this conversation.
1: I just finished Walter Lowry's Short Life of Kierkegaard, which is a a abridged version of the much longer book that he wrote on Kierkegaard's life. And it's definitely a more technical, academic-type work, and he is using, in a lot of cases, Kierkegaard's own writings to tell the story of Kierkegaard's life. And he very carefully goes through showing how each one of Kierkegaard's works comes about during his life and what he's thinking and what he's doing
0: when he's writing and the way that backhouse begins and i thought maybe we could we could start there is uh he begins with the funeral and you know just starting there you get the idea uh that first of all this that that there's it's a very uncomfortable situation because he's being he's being buried you know in a state funeral by the Danish state church uh and of course especially toward the end of his life Kierkegaard had uh, been attacking the church and even the bishop of uh Denmark uh who uh he had had been his tutor uh and uh Martinson is that his name Mm -hmm. and and then prior to that minster and then his uh but then at the gravesite, one of uh, Kierkegaard's nephews stands up and, and interrupts the funeral and gives this entire speech in which he uh, says, you know, wait a minute. That uh, why, would you, why would you bury him under the presumption that he's a good uh, you know, member of the Danish state church when in fact he has been the most vocal enemy of this sort of Christendom and would count this a sin, a black mark against his name, uh, to in some way be officially, you know, received into the Danish church. Um, And of course the, uh, uh, the nephew is later fined and, uh but so that the, the whole atmosphere is one of of a kind of unease and discomfort. Backhouse pictures uh Martinson and I don't know if he has historically run this down, but he pictures him witnessing uh you know, from behind his closed curtains of his mm-hmm. office the grave site and this gravesite scene, which is Uh, physically possible because his uh, the building that he was working from overlooked the graveyard
1: yeah and this is because the funeral was held actually at the cathedral the one cathedral that was in uh, copenhagen at this time and uh, martinson is now the bishop of the state church there in denmark and of course his bishop's chair would have been at this cathedral
0: And describe, then, uh, Kierkegaard's uh, relationship with Martinson.
1: Uh, Rocky at best. (laughs) I think, of course, they were probably uh, closer when Kierkegaard was at the university in his younger years. By this time, most of Kierkegaard's attacks are personal attacks on Martinson, and he refers to him as the professor. And he has lengthy discourses on how, oddly enough, there are no professors listed in the New Testament as offices (laughs) given in the early church. And so uh, you can imagine how Martinson takes these personal attacks. Another thing that I think is interesting about what you said out of Backhouse's biography is that the funeral says a lot about the man Kierkegaard, that Peter Kierkegaard, his brother... Uh, mentions that Kierkegaard was always a much better uncle than he ever was a brother. And so that as an uncle, he uh, was very well loved by all of his nieces and nephews and uh, has a very big impact upon their lives. But the relationship that he has with his brother who is conducting the funeral was never a very close relationship.
0: And that's a, that's an interesting observation because, and and uh that because at least two i think it's uh you know it, first of all it's a nephew that stands up uh at the funeral and it's a different nephew then that will be uh that he some of the last words i think that are recorded uh are speaking are his his words what's the uh, is it Lund that is uh one of his nephews yes that's correct and uh, says to him, I know there's a very embarrassing scene there, you know, where Lund brings a young friend in, and this friend says something like, well, if you'd just sit up and straighten up your back, you'd probably get the feeling better. And, of course, he's dying, you know. And, uh, you know, Kierkegaard winks at his his uh, nephew, Lund, and kind of, you know, passes over it, but says, uh as he leaves you know will will you know have a that i uh, i would hope you have a, a a good life and he he at at his death scene of course has turned away peter as i understand it who has come to give him last rites and communion yes and uh now i don't know what the connection is whether one should make a direct connection But of course, Peter is eventually uh, loses his mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And some have connected that then to the hard, harsh treatment by his brother. Is that your, how would you? Uh,
1: In any case, uh, Lowry, writing in a different time period, calls the mental illness that runs through the Kierkegaard family melancholy. Maybe we might call it some form of bipolar disorder or depression today. But both Kierkegaard's father and then Peter Kierkegaard suffer from the same uh, ailment, though, of course, their father is able to overcome it at different times in his life. But Peter Kierkegaard does end up being in an insane asylum.
0: And, and, you know, the thing that Backhouse says about this, uh, you know, that one might look at Kierkegaard and say, oh, well, he's depressed or clinically depressed. But actually he says that that's not, that's not correct. Because look at what he's doing. Look at the <laughs> massive production of, uh, you know, the, the writing that he's done. And so whatever it is that's afflicting him, you can't call it depression.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think a reading of the journals, which Lowry's constantly quoting the journals, uh, Kierkegaard is aware of the fact that he suffers from maybe some type of uh, not clinical depression, but he is prone to dwelling on darkness. However, he's so aware of it that he's able to overcome it, and he overcomes it through journaling and through writing. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody uh, you know, today with any experience with counseling or psychology would say, well, whatever was afflicting Kierkegaard was not a type of clinical depression that people seek treatment for.
0: And so uh, the picture there, the, the kind of the closing scene, you know, with, is with Martinson, in fact, Uh, quite relieved that (laughs) Kierkegaard has died, that he's becoming quite irritating. Um, I think this was the the thing that, as I've gotten back into this, I've been a little bit surprised. Uh, I had always, you know, of of course, Kierkegaard is an obscure figure, uh, just because Denmark is obscure. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people are going to learn Danish? And, but actually, in Denmark, he was, he was very well known. And I think that may, in fact, be the concern of both Minster, Bishop mm-hmm. Minster, and Bishop Martinson. But even the king and the queen of Denmark are, are reading, or at least uh, mm-hmm. uh, saying they're reading Kierkegaard, whether they actually have or not, and have invited him uh, for lunches and uh, that that he's quite influential in in Denmark.
1: He's living in a country, uh, he's living in the capital city of a country that really only has one city. I think Copenhagen was about 200,000 people when Kierkegaard lived there. And not only does he live in the one city in Denmark, but he also uh, runs around with the social elites from the time he's a child to the time that he dies. Uh, So he has friends in very high places. And this is in a large part due to his own father. So Lowry makes mention of the fact that throughout Kierkegaard's childhood, there were always these distinguished guests that would come over, and they would actually debate philosophy with Kierkegaard's father, though he had no formal uh, education. You know, he was raised actually a shepherd in Jutland, uh, these marshes that are Uh, Sort of very barren, a barren place to be, but makes it big in Copenhagen selling clothing. And it's a particular kind of clothing for this era. He is selling pre-made clothing versus tailored clothing, which would have caused some people to look down upon him. But of course, since he's one of the only people providing uh, clothing to the masses, he makes a fortune very quickly. Interestingly enough, he leaves the fortune to his children, he leaves the house to his children, but he leaves the business to one of his nephews. <laughs> Maybe he uh, had some insight into the character of his own children. Yeah. Uh, Kierkegaard never, of course, had to work a day in his life because of the fortune that his father left him, but he also was never concerned with running uh, any business. Right, and his right. father wanted both of his boys, uh, Peter. These are the boys that live, uh, Peter and Soren, to end up being priests. And Lowry depicts the atmosphere of the household as one that would have been very intellectually stimulating, but also one that was probably very religiously oppressive. And this may also contribute into uh, the psyche of both Peter Kierkegaard and Soren Kierkegaard.
0: Yeah, I think that that they're uh, in Backhouse. He begins with an early quote that Kierkegaard describing his early childhood, and and he describes it in as being. It, it, quite oppressive that uh, religiously that that there was this darkness, and of course the darkness is is manyfold. That it's partly the uh, darkness of whatever his father you know has done uh, to have the. And of course we learn later. I can't I can't remember who it is. Is it, is it a niece or that we learn that it is that uh, Michael Kierkegaard uh, has, uh, in fact, cursed uh, God as a child out on the herding sheep. Or
1: uh, yeah, Michael actually tells his, he reveal or er, Lowry at least speculates that Michael Kierkegaard has told both Soren and Peter. Peter will later confirm that it was the father himself that revealed this to his sons. And that's, of course, one layer of this darkness, but probably not the whole story. And there seems to be a period uh, when Soren is at university that he really rebels against his father. And in his journals throughout his whole life, he has great respect for his father, great love for his father. He was certainly his father's favorite son and was doted upon throughout his whole childhood. Uh, he He must learn or find out something to the effect that his father had been very sexually promiscuous. Uh, and it's not until he is in his 40s that Michael Kierkegaard gets married. His first wife, of course, dies, and it would seem that he might have seduced his second wife mm-hmm. and then been forced to marry her. He never actually considers her a full wife which is just a terrible thing. And that is that view of the kid's mother, because this is the mother of all the Kierkegaard children, is pushed on to the children, Mm -hmm. such that uh, Peter and Soren don't have a lot of nice things or really anything at all to say about their mother or the influence that she might have had on them. And Soren especially, though, recalls the influence, uh, both for positive and negative, that his father has on him.
0: Yeah, and a man that has written so much in journals and books. And as I understand it, there is never one mention of his mother.
1: She was not a full member of the household, which is just a terrible thing. Uh, There's quotes from his father, even to the bishop saying, well, my beloved first wife. (laughs) That's how he would continue to talk uh, even after he was remarried. So.
0: As I understand it, even in the, the uh, marriage contract that he made with the second wife, uh, that he stipulates: should this marriage not work out, uh, should our should our temperaments prove incompatible, uh, and then he offers a, a, a certain price, of course, that you know, like uh, it would be uh, the wages paid to someone in, in a uh, in a job gone bad. Mm-hmm. I, but I, I, at least Backhouse says that though by the time he had died, that she did then become, uh, uh, that at least it was stipulated that she would be the full heir. But of course that never, uh, it never came about that mm-hmm. she would inherit. Yeah.
1: And this of course is telling as we shift from the funeral to, the Kierkegaard's childhood. This is the type of house that he's growing up in. Uh, Peter Kierkegaard, the only brother that survives uh, you know, past, I think, like 20 years old, is the oldest child of Michael Kierkegaard, and Soren is the youngest child. And so it would seem that they're pitted against each other from the very beginning. They have rooms in this very large house that adjoin each other, and they're both uh, intellectually combative as well. Soren could have taken his brother Peter as his tutor during his university years. And perhaps Peter was the best tutor that anyone could have taken, as Mm -hmm. Lowry alludes to. But, of course, Soren wouldn't do anything like that. And so they're constantly in competition with each other. Soren is obviously the favorite son of their father. And this probably uh, continues to play into the relationship that they have throughout the rest of their lives.
0: Which is sort of, in a way, odd, because uh, Peter, in fact, seems to be, do everything right. You know, he goes through university Mm -hmm. in the correct number of years. What is it it takes him for? And uh, and it's going to take Soren 10 years to do what Peter did in four. Uh, That Peter then uh, becomes a very respectable member of the clergy. Uh, And even even uh, after Soren dies, he continues uh, uh, that even uh, Martinson with whom, you know, Soren had had such open conflict uh, continues to promote him in the, in the church of Denmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Kierkegaard was never uh, officially sanctioned or recognized, but was just sort of the scourge of the the entire society. But one that, certainly gained the attention of, you know, uh, a lot of people throughout Mm -hmm. society.
1: And maybe we could actually limit that. uh, And I did not realize this until reading the biography uh, that Soren was not so much an outcast except for two times in his life. One was with the general public during the Corsair affair, but that really did blow over after a few years when the Corsair stopped publishing attacks on him weekly. Uh, And then the second time in his life that he becomes really a public figure, he has the support of the mass populace. It's the clergy and the leading officials in Denmark, which the state church, everything is intertwined, are the people who would like to see the backside of him. And just to give an example, he's publishing... uh, first in the fatherland, these articles that are attacking the church. After he stops publishing in the fatherland, and this is all about in the course of a year, he starts writing his own pamphlet, and it's a weekly periodical. It's called The Moment. The Moment actually has a wider readership in Copenhagen than the fatherland, which is the, uh, the paper that everybody would read in Copenhagen at that point in time. And this takes place in just a matter of months because he starts publishing uh, the moment in May 24th uh, of 1855, which is, of course, the year that he dies.
0: And maybe this is the this is the uh, contrast here: that uh, the the degree to which Kierkegaard is isolated, uh, and, and of course he he it seems to be a contradiction with him within him that you know Beckhaus portrays him as a child. As physically, he he never seems to he seems to be discombobulated some way physically. That you know, mm-hmm. part of the thing that will come out in the Corsair uh, affair and the, the the biting part of the cartoons that they do are just the physical portrayal mm-hmm. more, more than than the you know the the words that that are spoken. And of course he's made to look like he has a hump back, or, mm-hmm. uh, which as I understand it, he may have had some sort of spinal problem, but certainly not a, a hump back or anything like mm-hmm. that. And
1: thin legs. And he was frail, but probably not uh, as he was depicted. And so even as a child, he's sickly and isn't able to participate in the rougher activities like the other boys would have been able to. And perhaps this is why he sharpens and hones his wit. And Lowry mentions the fact that he is a very witty person and always has a comeback and not worried to take a hit on the nose for something he might say to a bully uh, throughout his whole life. And that carries over. You know, He's got a group of friends that he often um, you know, runs around town with during his university years, uh, one of whom is Hans Christian Andersen. Oh. writes all the fairy tales, and perhaps he's the one who receives most of Kierkegaard's wit in sort of a sad way, since Anderson, I think, was a, uh, portrayed as a gentle giant by Lowry anyway and an easy target. But Kierkegaard was willing to unleash his wit on all of his friends. And uh, he's certainly not the recluse that he's often portrayed as. When he does become reclusive, it's because he's writing. Mm-hmm. So while he's writing either or, and the early pseudonymous works, he really wants them to be pseudonymous. Mm-hmm. So he devises these plans of how he'll write all day long, but so he doesn't arouse suspicion for not being out on the town. He still takes a promenade walk, and he shows up at the theater for about 10 minutes each night just to make an appearance. Everybody sees him, and then he leaves, so it was noted that he, will, he was there as yeah. so suspect him of actually spending all of his time writing an 800-page book.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so he wanted to uh, – even even Backhouse mentions that as a child, one of the other boys came in and was crying because uh, Kierkegaard had, you know, uh, had in some way made fun of him or done something. And, and, of course, the kid was so big, he said, well, you could fold him up and put him in your pocket if you wanted, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> But the idea was that that uh he, he used his uh wit to maybe yes. got to protect himself, maybe No, definitely. <laughs> maybe got him No. So uh the the childhood I think that the, the picture then is that uh it it is a a, a a home in which religion is very much part and even in the rebellion, you know, if he goes through a time, and it, it never seems to be a complete rejection, of, or do you think it is, of the religion? No,
1: uh, Lowry actually portrays the rebellion as more of a rebellion against his father because of his. he, for a while, thinks of his father as being very hypocritical because of what he finds yeah. out about his father and his mother and perhaps... Uh, You know a few other women that his father had seduced. But that also is probably the source of the religious stuffiness. And eventually Kierkegaard comes to realize that his father is truly repentant. Perhaps he doesn't know how to be uh, repentant in a um, a way that makes sense or a way that would be beneficial. So it is a sort of perverse repentance that he takes out upon his children uh, for the first 20 or so years of their lives. But uh, he comes to love his father more for it, and they reconcile.
0: And maybe the, the the relationship with his father can't be separated from the relationship to the church, and specifically the relationship to Bishop Minster. Mm-hmm. Uh, that as long as his father is alive, uh, he does not, as far as I know, speak a word against the church. No
1: nor as long as Bishop Minster's alive. Uh, The way Lowry portrays it is that Kierkegaard uses his entire authorship to develop the weapons that he then unleashes upon the church. And really what's uh, just the last two years of his life. So for the majority of his life, he's writing in such a way that most people think he's a staunch conservative because he supports the absolute monarchy. He doesn't say a word against the state church. Um, And it's not until the end of his life that he, is now trying in a very short time to explain everything that he's been leading up to and in the indirect dialogue, the indirect discourse that he uses, as well as the discourses that are more direct, but they're more direct in uh, how it ought to be a Christian. They don't really point out the, fault, the flaws of the state church uh, directly enough that people catch on. Though I think looking backwards over the course of his work, what you get in practice in Christianity, that's a direct attack on the church, you realize he might have characterized the church uh, in many ways, aesthetically and otherwise in the earlier works as well. However, he's not saying directly, here is the flaws of the Danish state church. He's just saying, here's the flaws of a certain type of way of life or a certain type of Christianity or a certain type of Christian existence.
0: Yeah, no, that that's the, uh, you yeah, know, the, uh, part that he, he he begins. I mean, he just makes an open break with the church and stops attending church. At one point, as I understand it, they've you know someone threatens with uh, no longer offering him communion. And mm. of course, what they don't recognize is, oh well, he hadn't been attending church for some mm. time. And of course, his non-attendance is uh, a just, but he's he's completely then uh, made the claim that Christianity as it exists in the state church has nothing to do with the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that comes, can you give us, uh, where, in, in terms of a time period, where would you say that in his life that there is that sort of break? Um, he becomes very
1: public uh, in practicing Christianity, which was published in 1850. But even in practicing Christianity, uh, this work is a pseudonymous work. The Sickness Unto Death somewhat could be taken as an affront to the church. But both of these are pseudonymous works. It's not actually until uh, 1854 that he begins publishing articles directly communicated in the newspaper there in Copenhagen against the church. And so he really does wait up until the end of his life to start making the type of personal attacks that will offend Martinson.
0: And of course, all of this discussion, probably we need to picture it with the background of what's taking place in world history. Mm -hmm. But Martinson is very much a Hegelian. And Hegel is, everybody, you know, it seems taken with Hegel in Denmark, he's, uh, but also politically, then, what you have in a Hegelian understanding are notions of progress that would seem to be the impetus behind the various revolutions, the French Revolution
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that, that is taking place, and so it's it's an interesting thing the way that that Kierkegaard is anti-Hegel, anti-Martinson. But then, as a result, seen as a political conservative in terms of uh, uh, revolution.
1: Yes. And so then it becomes very odd that when Denmark ends up in a conflict with Germany that ends the absolute monarchy in Denmark, Kierkegaard doesn't ever mention it. In his writings, and his journals, it's as if he just does not care. I think it's because, in his mind, what he is grappling with, the state church or Christianity becoming Christian and trying to teach others to become Christian also, or at least to teach others to be able to make a decision whether or not they want to be Christian also, is totally consuming him by that point in his life. Though it's funny, you mentioned that he's, Uh, anti-Hegelian, even as early as the time period in which he's writing Either Or, which is published in 1843, he has already been to Berlin. And while he's in Berlin, he attends the lectures of Schelling, hoping to hear somebody take apart the Hegelian system. And as he listens to Schelling, he is completely dissatisfied and ends up going back home to Copenhagen much earlier than he had planned to. Mm-hmm.
0: This is the thing that the brought out. And I thought, you know, we often picture the trip to Berlin and may think, Oh, he just attended a few of these, but actually, uh, back says he attended 40 lectures.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and of course they're in German, but his German Kierkegaard's German seems to be, uh, uh, Obviously, it's good enough that he's understanding Mm -hmm. the lectures, which would be very difficult. But of course, uh, it's sort of ironic that he's heard enough of Schelling uh, to to get the picture. And I'm never sure that there's that you know that that Schelling is kind of the rising star more than Hey, or at least you know rises and is known quicker than Hegel is. But I'm never sure there's a lot of daylight between these two guys in terms of philosophical understanding. And so Kierkegaard is, is, uh, completely rejects it.
1: And you can imagine how disheartened he would be because at this point in time, Berlin is the intellectual capital of the world, uh, really, as far as somebody like Kierkegaard would be concerned. And so to think that you were going to hear the very best and decide that you could actually do better... <laughs> and he goes home to Copenhagen and does better.
0: I, maybe I, speak, I spoke too quick there. In saying that he completely rejects Hegel, this is the thing that Slavoj Žižek brings out, is, is of course, that he's very well read, and, and what he's doing is, is very much an engagement with Hegel and awareness of what Hegel has done, um, now I, I do think it ultimately takes Hegel into account, but goes beyond Hegel and is not, in fact, a, a, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I'm thinking here, sickness unto death. That psychologically, you know, you could say, well, Hegel has worked a lot of that out uh, in the, you know, the, the phenomenology of spirit, of phenomenology of mind. But of course, yeah, that he's worked that out. But he's worked it out as if, you know, the, the angst and the, the idea of a, an antithesis and the need for a synthesis mm-hmm. is the end of the story. And, of course, Kierkegaard's point would be that's not the end of the story. That's a diagnosis of the human problem, the human predicament, and Christianity then is the resolution. But it's precisely that resolution that's missing in Hegel.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that for Kierkegaard, uh, Hegel's biggest flaw and fault is that as he's tackling these ideas that are that Kierkegaard himself considers to be true, Hegel does it in such a way that he takes them all to be universals. And so it's sort of an exercise in arrogance. Hegel's trying to come up with a system that explains everything. And Kierkegaard would say, well, that's misdirected, that actually we simply need to understand how... Uh, We need to be able to explain ourselves and why we do what we do and how we're going to live and how we're going to be, how we're going to be Christians. And essentially it becomes how you're going to be a Christian.
0: Yeah. uh, This all gets mixed in because it it gets a little confusing when you think of the philosophy and the politics here, because a Hegelian form of Christianity would tie the Christianity to culture that the unfolding of you know culture and progress and which would that seems to be what the state church in denmark then there it is a kind of you know cultured understanding you know enlightenment christianity uh that i you know looking back on it uh is the undoing you know, in the end of it it is the end of any kind of distinctive aspect uh to to Christianity. So and and of course what Kierkegaard is calling people to is not this cultural notion of Christianity, but the idea of the singular individual mm-hmm. uh standing before God. And that's the feel you get. Uh, you know, in his own life, that even though as he portrays himself as a kind of cultural gadfly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but he's serious enough that even after an evening when he's had a a, a lot of fun and been out, uh, he still goes home and feels terrible about himself because he realizes uh, that's, that, that's a pretty thin sort of life uh, to be living. And so this causes him to wrestle over everything that he
1: does. <laughs> Any decision that he makes, essentially for Kierkegaard, becomes a type of religious decision. And I'm thinking specifically of his uh, short-lived engagement to Regine Olson.
0: Yeah, this is this is the big thing. You know, what is the what is this all about? Why does he? You know, in, in many ways, it's just a typical love affair, that they're they're engaged, and he takes the engagement very seriously, but like everything, maybe more seriously (laughs) than any human Mm -hmm. uh, normal uh, intercourse can can withstand. So give us your theory on the significance of this.
1: Uh, I'll give you Walter Lowry's thoughts on the engagement to Reggie and Kierkegaard is love at first sight, he's wanting to marry this girl. He goes and uh, actually Schlegel has already expressed interest in her, but Kierkegaard is willing to convince her and her father to let them be engaged. And that's a long process in itself. I don't know that Regine uh, shared Kierkegaard's instant affections, uh, but it works its way out to the state where she truly is wanting to marry him. He wants to marry her. And it's at this time when he starts to have qualms they're because of his conscience. Lowry proposes an idea that several German scholars have also proposed that in university, Kierkegaard had a few friends. One of them actually figures into either or as the seducer. The seducer is modeled off of this individual anyway, and they end up taking him to a brothel after drinking copious amounts of alcohol, and of course, Kierkegaard loses his virginity there. And He feels duty-bound to tell this fact, this truth, to Regine if he's going to marry her because he thinks that for marriage to work, there has to be complete honesty, a complete openness. However, he's not willing, in his mind, to uh, steal away her innocence, (laughs) in that way of even just telling her, relating to her, this account of his earlier life. Mm -hmm. Also, he is concerned with the fact that his father had suffered from depression at certain times in his life, and his brother Peter has already at this point also. And he thinks that he might, too, have to introduce her into this life which is ruled by melancholy. And so these two things lead him to think it would be much better for her if he would break off the engagement. Of course, he thinks the only way to break off the engagement that would be fair to her is if he behaved so poorly that she actually truly hated him and would want to break off the engagement with him so that he doesn't leave her in a life in which he thinks that she'll just pine away for him uh, for the rest of her life he almost succeeds (laughs) in making such a buffoon of himself to the extent that he also goes to Berlin at this time in his life, uh, mainly just to hide from the shame. But also he as he's journaling about this. He's going to Berlin to show insensitivity to her such that she really will hate him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He instantly regrets what he's done.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems like he never really convinces her that, uh, that, that he's sincere in his, uh, in the break.
1: And it's not too long afterwards. Uh, this of course can't be substantiated by anybody, but Kierkegaard sitting in church one morning thinks that she gives him a nod. (laughs) And of course he interprets that to mean that she's still in love with him. Uh, who's to say she wasn't looking at somebody else altogether, but uh, this is the way he interprets it. And it causes him to dedicate all sorts of his works to her and uh, so on. And eventually leave whatever money he had left uh, to her. He tries to strike up a friendship with her, what he calls a sisterly relationship later on in his life. He proposes this to her then husband. And of course he rejects the idea. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He has to wait for her father to die first, though, before he even approaches her husband with the idea of a friendship, because her father was so against Soren. after he broke off the engagement.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, it was that that, uh, he broke her heart that Mm -hmm. that I think was really cruel, and the father, understandably, Mm -hmm. couldn't understand that.
1: Yeah, And and a scandal, a very public scandal that would have shamed her as well.
0: Yeah. And so this, I mean, it never stopped plaguing him. It it is a thing that he continues to write about in his journals that uh, he even quotes his own letter breaking off the relationship. I can't remember in which work it appears. Uh, So that this affair or this engagement and it's, But it's almost, you've described it to me in a private conversation, that it was almost as if he had decided in breaking this off that he was going to dedicate himself on the order of a a priest or someone completely to the work of of Christ.
1: Yeah, and this is the way he describes the event in his journals, that, uh, of course, he's not taking vows of marriage, so instead he's taking vows to God. And in his mind, what that means is he's dedicating himself to continuing the authorship that he had already begun at that point. So he's and he's going to continue writing through the postscript, of course. Then the Corsair affair comes on, and he once again renews himself to uh, his authorship that becomes much more Christian uh, at that point, or uh, at least um, blatantly Christian.
0: Now, you mentioned the the, uh, seducer, and Backhouse, uh, uh, he claims that, in fact, the uh, person that Kierkegaard had in mind, that the Corsair had two editors, Mm -hmm. and that the seducer is actually one of the editors of the Corsair.
1: Yes, who had previously been a good friend of Kierkegaard while they were in university together. And the Corsair affair is what completely destroys their friendship.
0: And it, uh, I mean, I don't, that Moeller is his last name. What is it? Moeller. Moeller. So that Moeller is a sort of a cad that, that uh, it it doesn't seem to be any, uh, you know, that everybody sort of assumed that's, that was his character and the magazine, the Corsair sort of fit his personality. Mm -hmm. it, It wasn't, it was a kind of, uh. A uh, humorous journal. Lowry
1: describes the Corsair as a periodical that absolutely everybody read, but nobody would admit to reading.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, back out. Same thing that that uh, no respectable gentleman would would buy the Corsair, but of course he would immediately look for his the copy that his servants had bought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Everybody was reading it. Yes, it just lampooned
1: everybody. And of course, uh, Kierkegaard, maybe he makes a grave miscalculation when he engages with the Corsair because what he thinks, of course, is that he could use his wit like he always has before to come out on top. But the readership of the Corsair doesn't quite appreciate the nuances of Kierkegaard's humor, but of course readily can understand the
0: drawn cartoons of Kierkegaard himself. And at some point, it goes. I mean, it seems to begin in, in a kind of uh, that everybody's agreed that it's uh, you know uh, a, a humorous thing. But at some point, it becomes quite bitter. Yes, uh, that they're all they all end up mad at each other. Yeah, uh, to the extent that. Uh, um
1: And, of course, Kierkegaard sees it as his duty then to stay in Copenhagen. He thought about returning to Berlin for a while, but the attack turned so sour rather than leave, he feels like he's duty-bound now to stay on the spot and defend himself or attack back is what he's actually doing. But it's so bad that uh, one of his enjoyments is to take carriage rides throughout the countryside surrounding Copenhagen. And this is what he does to clear his mind. Uh, that even on these carriage rides, people stop his carriage and verbally will abuse him.
0: Uh, Children throwing rocks at him, Mm -hmm. uh, that he became just, uh, uh, backhouse pictures that that prior to this, that he, Kierkegaard was was a very gregarious sort, so again, the, the idea of a loner doesn't quite fit, that Kierkegaard would walk through the streets and take what he called people baths. Yes, daily. He, he would just, he just loved talking to people, mm-hmm. and, and uh, he would just stop everybody on the street. It didn't mm-hmm. matter who they were or what their occupation was, uh, that he was interested in, in, in who they were, and he was going to use them in character studies, and mm-hmm. uh, that he truly loved people, it seems like, and the Corsair affair then uh, made this impossible for him.
1: At least for some time, and if I alluded to earlier, it seems like towards the end of his life, he wins the people back to him. Mm-hmm. He has a very wide readership in the more direct things that he's writing in the fatherland mm-hmm. and in his own periodical, the moment.
0: And so... Uh, In your depiction, again, we were talking about this. It's your idea, and I think Backhouse says something similar, that with the Corsair affair, he had thought that with the unscientific postscript that he would end his authorship and maybe become a country parson somewhere. Mm -hmm. But in fact, this changes the course of his life.
1: I think he feels misunderstood (laughs) to the extent that he starts to wonder whether or not the mode of indirect discourse, which he has used uh, completely up until that point, except for the discourses that he's published, the uh, upbuilding discourses, uh, he feels like maybe people have missed the point. And so he renews himself to writing and takes on an authorship that actually uh, includes more works than were written before the unscientific postscript. And Moore uh, works in his own name,
0: as I understand. Yes. He
1: well, yeah, they're all in his own name, except for uh, two, which are the sickness unto death and practice in Christianity. And, of course, at that point, the pseudonyms are employed differently than they had been before. So before, in his writings, the pseudonyms uh, polemicized maybe a certain thing that he might think, but, of course, characterize characterize caricatured it in such a way that no human being actually thought so uh, you know, starkly on any one issue. But by the time he writes these Christian works and he decides to put the pseudonym Johannes anticlimacus to them, it's because he feels like he has written on Christianity in such a way that he is instructing himself. And so he doesn't want to claim uh, the authority of being able to tell the rest of the people in Denmark how they ought to be Christians when he himself hasn't attained this level of Christian existence. So it's a word to himself as well as to everybody else. Hey, I, the pseudonym.
0: Yeah. The, 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 uh, the, a couple of things here, you know, the, the function of the pseudonyms, but also then his own claim, you know, that he's very judgmental, a very harsh in regard to what is not Christianity. Now, of course, the, the natural backlash to that would be to attack him, and
1: mm-hmm. of
0: course, his comeback was not, oh, well, I am, you know, in some way a true Christian, but he is just saying, no, the ideal is needs to be set forth here. Let's get in mind what a Christian would look like, and not necessarily that I've attained this, you know, uh, that. You know, it, it it is something that we set forth and then uh, uh, attain, and so uh, that at one point, you know, he even hesitates to call himself a Christian. But I, I don't think that he ever,
1: did. in his own words, he's always becoming a Christian. Yeah. And of course, he doesn't think that doesn't mean that he's a, a part of the body of Christ or something like
0: that. It was at G.K. Chesterton that says, you know, it's not that. Uh, Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it's never been tried yet. Uh, <laughs> yes. No one's ever really done this thing. No. Um, and I think that's the picture with uh, Kierkegaard. Yes. Let's never. get in mind what it, it is both a very difficult thing as he pictures it, but I think also once you get the idea of the sickness unto death, And the idea that, no, actually, uh, Christianity is a burden that a a cross that is very light, it's easy to bear. The point being that to not be in Christ, to bear Mm -hmm. the sickness, that's the true burden. That's the hell on earth. To be in despair. to, To be in despair and to have no cure. And mm-hmm. so he will talk about Christianity as a very difficult thing to to do, and yet, and on the other hand, very a very light mm-hmm. burden to bear. And in his own journals,
1: you see that progression made by himself. Uh, he, you know, when he's writing either or, when he's writing some of the earlier works, and he's writing Repetition and Fear and Trembling and the Philosophical Fragments, the Concept of Anxiety. He's not necessarily writing those, there aren't specifically Christian works. They are from a theological point of view, but they're from a theological point of view that is either caught up in the aesthetic or the ethical. And so you see in a lot of his works, he himself will progress through these stages, as he calls it in his journals, and then he will write about the stage that he has passed through. And so finally, though, he gets to where he's going to write practice in Christianity. And he writes down, I believe in his journal, that uh, he's about to break one of the cardinal sins of showing people or telling people just how good he is. Because he sees these works as being such wonderful works, and they are. That he will then again, uh, for the first time in a few years, employ a pseudonym. But it's not this time because he's already passed through the stage, but because he's not yet
0: attained it. This is, a, this is a thing with Kierkegaard, that uh, he seemed fully confident in his own powers. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, from a very early age, he thinks that his journals will be published. Yeah. So he begins to write in such a way that he thinks they could be
0: published someday. And uh, I can't remember, is it, uh, is it fear and trembling? He said, on the basis of this work alone, that my name will go down in history.
1: Yeah, he, um, and maybe it's understandable, he goes to the only university in Denmark at that time, which is the one that was in Copenhagen, and he is very good at academics while he's there. So he literally knows all of the intellectuals in Denmark, and he knows where he falls in amongst them.
0: But, you know, just looking across, if you had to choose somebody, you know, who remembers Minster or Martinson today? Mm -hmm. And of course, well, Martinson was in that period. I think he had published his theological works that they were even translated.
1: He was the leading
0: theologian in Um, his lifetime. Is anybody in the world today reading Martinson? I don't know. <laughs> I can't. I, I can't. Not unless they're studying Kierkegaard. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the way we in, in summing this up at the end of the con, you know why why dedicate this much time to talking about uh, Soren Kierkegaard? Why this obscure or one time obscure you know Danish philosopher? Uh, you know, what is the impact that he's had uh, on the world, on Christianity? Uh, if somebody asked you that, I mean, where would you begin to describe uh, just the the nature of the impact?
1: I, I guess the way he's impacted me is I think of somebody who spent uh, a total of 10 years in the university, eight of those years were studying Uh, absolutely nothing because he was studying absolutely everything. And in the last two years, he's able to prepare for his theological examinations and pass with the equivalent of what we would now call a Ph.D. in theology. It would have been something like systematic theology, somebody that steeped in Christian doctrines and dogma, but the way that he thinks he is going to disciple a whole nation, really, Uh, is in and through teaching them how to live as Christians. So it is a very practical Christianity, but it's not a practical Christianity that's devoid of an intellectual depth. But it's presented in such a way that it really grabs a hold of you. And uh, I think he does a good job in what what he set out to do, and that's to instruct people of the choice that they have, which is either follow Jesus or be in despair. And when he puts he puts it so blatantly in such an indirect way that I think it almost like a detective novel. It continues to draw you in. You can't but help to be drawn into the his life, his writings, what he's doing. Uh, He does it so beautifully. But in the end, his message is very simple.
0: And and Backhouse has he dedicates a whole chapter to just describing. You know he, he pictures it. He says, imagine a globe. In which you would begin to see these red lines coming out from Denmark. So, mm-hmm. you know, and first, you know, he's—I tra- think he's translated into English, but but of course, eventually, uh, the the lines would just be going every which direction. You know, he he uh, points out that even in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, there are two Kierkegaard societies who do not agree on. You know that there is very few developed countries uh or perhaps even third world countries uh that have not been impacted by, mm-hmm. by Rico. of course yeah, and and of course just that's just uh, on a general impact, say nothing about the impact on christianity
1: mm. Mm-hmm. And I think what he does so well is just to cut through the nonsense. In Kierkegaard, you don't have any arguments about uh, who wrote the book of Isaiah or what day Jesus was actually born on. He kind of cuts through all the nonsense to get to the heart of Christianity.
0: And in that, maybe then, and of course this was always his problem, is that the degree to which his contemporaries uh, could not comprehend him because they were so steeped in the spirit of the age and of course that's precisely what he's writing over and against yes yeah. so that in a you know think of the people who are going uh, to be key in uh 20th 21st century theology uh beginning with karl barth and his you know reading of soren kierkegaard uh the post liberal move mm. in theology is very much geared uh to a kierkegaardian understanding even ludwig wittgenstein you know wittgenstein who always said oh i never read anybody but of course everybody knew he was reading sore kierkegaard
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but uh he is of obviously going to impact a post-modern, post-liberal theology, perhaps more than anyone else. Yeah, I would think that was true. Now, the, of course, the other side of that is that there is also an existentialism, an atheistic existentialism, Sartre, you know, Camus, uh, that uh, are going to pick up Kierkegaard and read him, not for religious purposes, mm-hmm. uh, but for the purely existential aspect and want to claim him very openly as their lineage yeah yeah john this has been a great conversation uh let's continue uh and and uh uh, focus uh later uh on some key works but at least today we've we've introduced the life of kirk and perhaps talk a little bit then about his impact and importance